We thank you, Father, that you've given us the freedom to worship together as we do this morning on this day in which we commemorate the day of the triumphal entry of our Lord into Jerusalem as he came to fulfill the law and all the preaching and teaching of the prophets. And Father, as we study from the law today, help us to understand that the truth that was given on the top of Mount Sinai is still the truth that is applicable to us today. We know that Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And Lord, we don't live by the law simply for the sake of the law, but for the love of God, which dwelleth within our hearts. I pray, Father, that we will be obedient people, not out of legalistic attitude towards our faith in you, but out of love, out of submission, out of a desire to be all that you have called us to be. Lord, I pray that your spirit will open our hearts to truth, that you remove every hindrance to what the word of God would do in us today. We resist the evil one and pray that he will not be able to uh, confound or confuse or to in any way take away the word from our hearts as you plant it there. May it grow within us. And we ask, Lord, that you'll be blessing throughout the uh, Sunday school this morning and in the service. Bless the chorale as they as they sing this morning, give strength to each one, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 20, God has led Israel out of captivity in Egypt through the Red Sea by the miraculous parting of the waters. He has led them into the wilderness of the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. And there on a barren granitic mountain that was a mountain that had nothing to afford to anyone that would be out of the ordinary. God called Moses to the top of that mountain and in a great pyrotechnic show, you might say, God spoke to Moses and he gave the words which we read here specifically. And then, of course, he spoke to Moses over a, over a 30-day period. I mean, it didn't take Moses 30 days to hear the 10 words. <laughs> What we have, of course, is all of the rest of the writings of the Pentateuch given to us through Moses as God revealed him, actually going all the way back to Genesis. How did Moses know what happened in the beginning if it weren't for the fact that God revealed it to him there on the top of Mount Sinai? And so Moses was able to record the uh, book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as a result of what God revealed to him there on the top of Mount Sinai, and as the Spirit of God inspired him over the weeks and months following to record all this information that we have here uh, in these books. I'd like to read, uh, beginning at verse 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We've been looking at these various words of the Decalogue now over the past few Sundays. And, and we have studied God's proclamation relative to man's attitude towards God himself. 
that you shall have no other gods before me, that you shall not make for yourself a graven image to worship. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And, and then we move on to the statement that they were to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, and we looked at that in some detail. And now, as we move into the second part of the Decalogue, God speaks about human relationships in particular. And we've already dealt with honor your father and your mother. And last week we looked at the, the simple statement, you shall not murder. Today we're looking at, the, at verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. This, of course, is a very powerful word. A word that deals with one of the most driving forces within the human race. This commandment flew directly in the face of what the Israelites had witnessed through their 400 years there in the land of Egypt. Egyptian culture, as was true of all the cultures that surrounded them at that time, was shot through with what we would term from biblical understanding immorality. But it was just part of their practice. It was part of their religion. It was a part of their way of understanding life. And Israel had been, of course, impacted by this over the years of living within that culture. In most pagan religions and cultures of that day, sexual intercourse with just about anyone and anything was considered to be, at the very least, acceptable, at the very most, a sacred act. In fact, it was very common in the religions of that day, and this is true, of course, not only in Egypt, but amongst the Phoenicians and the Canaanites and the Amorites and the many other nations that Israel will be dealing with over the centuries ahead. It was very common for them to hold in highest esteem the fertility gods and goddesses. And as, as we read through the remaining books of the Old Testament, we constantly run across the references to Baal or Baal and the reference to Ashtra or Ashtart. And Baal, of course, is a male fertility god, and Ashtra is a female fertility god or goddess. And as part of the worship of these gods and goddesses was, of course, sacred prostitution. Priests and priestesses carried out these sacred acts, and they carried it out with the, the participants from what you would call the congregation, if you will. And all of this was considered to be part of the worship of the deities. And yet, Israel was not to be like that. Israel was to have a totally different attitude about this, this basic human desire and need and, and what God had instilled within the human race. The Hebrew word here, which is translated adultery, specifically means sexual relations with someone else's wife or fiancé. Primar the primary focus is not upon uh, what is known as fornication, which is sexual relations between unattached persons. That is not to say that that's acceptable. That is also, of course, prohibited in, in the commandments. But that is not the primary thrust of this particular statement here. That is dealt with in other parts of the law. Marriage is a divine institution. And we have all heard that. You know, you've all you've been to your own wedding, I would trust, and then to other people's weddings. And, and this is almost always preached. Marriage 
was instituted by God. And it's kind of like then we'd throw the switch and turn it off, you know, and don't pay attention to what is being said. Marriage is a divine institution. It was created by God as the most intimate and complete of all human relationships. There is no other human relationship that is to be as intimate and complete as the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Its purpose was to engage a man and a woman to such a degree that they would become, as the scripture describes them, one flesh. And you don't have to turn to it if you don't wish, but let me just read for you the oft quoted in the New Testament, the often quoted passage uh, from the book of Genesis in verse 24, chapter 2. It says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And of course, we hear that over and over again, and yet in many, time, in many cases we don't really understand what that means. I think what makes marriage so important above almost any other institution that you read about in Scripture is that it was to serve as an illustration of the intimate relationship that God wants with His people. Now you have looked at this passage many times, you have heard sermons on this passage many times, but I don't think it will hurt us to turn again to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 gives us more insight than just about any other passage of Scripture as to the real meaning of marriage and why God instituted it and why God deals so forcefully with any deviation from the program that he has established called marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. These next two verses are really key verses. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Obedience to these two verses makes adultery impossible, makes it so that there is no cause for it, there's no desire for it. it. It just does not exist if those verses are a part of one's life. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. For we are all members of his body. Notice how it quotes again now from Genesis. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, 
but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. That passage gives to us an understanding of why God holds marriage in such high esteem. It is a picture. It is an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his body, the bride, which is the church. And I'm talking about not the church as an institution, but the church as, as the born-again believers all over the world, whatever name is written across the church they happen to attend. Those that are truly members of the kingdom of God form the bride, and Christ is the bridegroom. And the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom is to be one of total commitment and dedication because Christ was willing to die. That's how much he loved the bride. So much that he would die, give his very life for his bride. Now obviously, to mess with God's institution called marriage is therefore to mess with this portrait, this picture, this illustration of the relationship between God and his people. And I think really the, the two reflect one another. As the, the church begins to grow cool in its relationship to God, so marriage begins to fall apart. And you see, I think the two go parallel, one with the other. As you see mar marriages falling apart, I'm talking about Christian marriages, falling apart and, and adultery taking place, I think it's a reflection of, of the church becoming apostate at the same time. For the husband and wife, or wife, to have sexual relations with someone other than their own spouse is to trivialize the very act that symbolizes this one fleshness of the husband and the wife. Now, one fleshness goes beyond, of course, just the physical union. The one flesh means that we become one in our thinking, one in our spirits, one in our desires. That doesn't mean we're just kind of like twiddle-dee and twiddle-dum, you know. But it means that we have the same goals and the same desires. And as the man and the woman come together, they create a, whole, a wholeness here. And in that wholeness, they're able to minister to other people from both sides of the marital spectrum, if you will. And that's why I feel that the Roman Catholic Church has gone so far afield in refusing to allow the priests to be married because they have no concept of what it means to be in a marital situation. How can they counsel married, married people? How can they deal with children which they've never had? And, and, and of course, we see what this is producing. It's producing a tremendous backlash uh, within that church. There's a strong movement against that, of course. And uh, all kinds of sexual problems have come out of this, which are making headlines, as you know now, and, and really they always have. Of course, the uh, teaching is not a biblical teaching. It's their own church law. It has nothing to do with uh, biblical teaching. But those who, who view the commitment of husband and wife to each other in every sense of the word and maintaining themselves only for each other, those who do not feel that that's very important and they feel that it's, you know, the sexual relationship is to be shared and spread around. What they're doing, of course, is tearing the image of God down to the animal level, which God never intended it to be. God created the sexual union 
for the enjoyment and the fulfillment of the married couple. It, of course, was also created for the purpose of propagation of the race. Now, you probably know, if you've studied much about church history, there have been times when the emphasis was that God created the sexual relationship only for the propagation of the race, and there was something sinful about enjoying it. That is totally non-biblical. Uh, God creates every good thing for the enjoyment of his people. And it's to be a part of the joy of, of a husband and wife. And this re is, is reflected in how God reacts to any violation of this commandment and any related commandments. For example, let's turn, if you will, to the 20th chapter of Leviticus. As we read this passage, we need to understand that God has not changed in his character or his demands because God is immutable, unchanging. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's a lot of nonsense being taught today in this country, even within the framework of some churches, relative to what we're going to read about in this passage. Let's look at it first, beginning at verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If there is a man who lies with his father, wa father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death, their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to, get to death. They have committed incest, their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death, their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who marries a woman and her mother, it is immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no immorality in your midst. If there is a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. If there is a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, you shall surely kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. That's harsh. It's also grotesque. The New Testament does not teach that someone caught in adultery is to be immediately executed. But God's attitude towards these things has not changed. If the immediate demand or command relative to what is to be the social reaction to this has changed, that doesn't mean God's attitude towards the sin involved has changed at all. It has not. You'll notice in this particular passage that adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality all carry the same penalty, death to all participants. Now, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 9 to 11, you'll find that there is a similar New Testament statement. And of course, this is a passage that is very familiar to you. You probably have seen the photographs as I have. Somebody has, in, in San Francisco, has written this passage right on the wall of a building or something. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, 
nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This passage, when you put it in, you juxtapose it with the Old Testament passage that we just read and others, what you see is God is the same. His attitude is the same. His view is the same. The immediate repercussions may be different. In, in Leviticus, they're commanded to execute the person. In the days of the Roman world, the, the church had no power to execute anyone. And so there was no execution, no penalty in the sense that you carry someone out and stone them to death because they've been caught in this. But notice, what is really important has not changed. It says at the beginning of the ninth verse, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And that's the real point of it all. Whether one dies today, tomorrow, or five years, or 20 years from tomorrow is not the key issue. Because we're all going to die someday. The key issue is whether we inherit the kingdom of God or not. Because that's forever and ever. It's eternal. And as we look at this uh, 1 Corinthian passage, we understand he is saying the unrighteous. And then he is, he is not giving here a total list. This is not a comprehensive list here of all of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are just overt manifestations of those who have not taken Christ into their lives. And, of course, we, t we understand from verse 11, therefore, that because someone was a homosexual, does not mean they're going to hell if they have been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he says there, and such were some of you. A and that's where we have such vileness going on today in America, where we have churches that, that proclaim that being homosexual, for example, is just the same in a homosexual relationship. As long as you're faithful to the same guy or same woman, is, is no different from being married in a, in a you know, heterosexual relationship. And that's baloney. And the scripture makes it very, very clear. It's not a sin to be homosexual as long as you aren't practicing it if you've become a believer in Christ. All sin is washed away, but then you're not to walk in that way. Just as an adulterer who's been forgiven is not to continue being an adulterer. Or a reviler continue to be a reviler, or a covetous person continue to be covetous, or a drunk continue to be a drunk. We're changed, we're transformed, we're to be different. That, that tendency might still be there, that desire might still be there, but it's to be rejected, and people are to walk in the way that God has set before them. And we've heard so much nonsense today, going clear back to the Kinsey reports, which, you know, you've probably heard the fact that... Uh, much was not made of it back then, but the Kinsey Report was made from studies in prisons where the rate of homosexuality was much higher than it was in the general public. And, and they have since discovered, of course, that in the general public, their tendencies towards homosexuality is just a teeny fraction of what the reports originally said. Instead of 10%, it's, it's 1% at the most two. And so what we have is all this baloney is being fed into us today, and, and the church tends to say, well, you know, if it's scientific, we've got to kind of accept it, right? Well, there are some pretty strong passages relative to that in, in Scripture. You know, so-called science are, you know, is referred to in Timothy. 
There are passages in the Psalms which say that, you know, what good is it to proclaim all this stuff if you don't even acknowledge the one who's the author of all truth? There are some institutions, like the University of California, Berkeley, where you walk through one of the archways, and it says over the top of the archway, and the truth shall set you free. That's great. It's quoted from Scripture, but where's the rest of the passage? You know? Jesus is the truth, and yet his name can't even be spoken. If you were to get up in University of California in one of the classrooms, and it's not literature talking about the New Testament, where you've got to mention the name of Jesus because it's in there, and you start talking about Jesus, I mean, you're going to be kicked out or sued or something. The truth of the horribleness of adultery was known to those who lived even before Moses. If we turn to the book of Job, to the 31st chapter, beginning at verse 9, he says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, May my wife grind for another, and let others kneel down over her, for that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by the judges. And then verse 12 is a real key statement here. For it would be fire that consumes to abaddon, that is to hell, and would uproot all my increase. There are many passages in Scripture which teach us that sin carries on from generation to generation to generation to the third and even the fourth generation. And that's not because God puts the, the blame for the father's sin on the son and on the grandson and the great-grandson. It's because the tendency, the willful desire to walk in the ways of evil is carried on by example and, and possibly even in other ways. Uh, from generation to generation, it's got to be broken. It's got to be broken. Job emphasizes the truth here that adultery destroys all parties, including the children of the adulterers. That's what we're seeing here at the very last phrase of verse 12, and would uproot all my increase. My children are going to be totally uprooted and destroyed by this down through the generations, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. Even some of the secular psychologists have admitted that children are badly damaged as a result of adultery and uh, divorce that comes along into families. The devastation of adultery is further highlighted by Solomon, who ought to know something about that. If we turn to Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse 24, well, let me begin with verse 23, so it kind of leads into 24. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced, and this, I, I can't hardly keep from laughing every time I read the rest of this verse. I don't know what it is in your translation, but I love it in this one. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom, and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals, and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife, 
Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be content, though you give many gifts. Our society, of course, is shot through with it. It's just as if it's just another way of life. Oh, well, you know, uh, who's your husband this week or this year or whatever? With no idea of what it's doing to tear apart the individuals involved and their families. Solomon says the one who commits adultery lacks sense. Such a person is senseless, is what it's saying. And in, in the process, he's destroying himself. Now, now, Jesus took this beyond the realm of just the actual physical act. As he taught his disciples, he pointed out to them that there is an attitude of heart which is involved here. And we've noted this before, but let me just again turn to the fifth chapter of Matthew, verse 27, where Jesus said, You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. He's quoting this commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He's not saying that the original commandment is false. He's saying you've got to look at it far beyond just the actual physical act of going over and copulating with somebody else's spouse. There is a deep-seated heart attitude here which is involved. And Jesus made it clear that anyone or anything that takes away from the total devotion of a husband and a wife to each other is adultery. And it starts in the mind and it starts in the heart. If it doesn't start there, it's not going to happen. You know, you just, just, you know, one day find yourself in that situation without having contemplated it before without having made room for it in the heart to take place. If the heart is filled with love and commitment for the other person, there is no room for anything to move in and to break that oneness of flesh. So there's got to be an opening to start with. And that's what Jesus is saying, the attitude of heart. And it's important for us to understand how this relates to our relationship to God. Because Anything or anyone which divides our devotion to God is, therefore, the perpetrator of spiritual adultery. We can be spiritual adulterers by allowing something else into the place where God is to be in our lives. Let me read a verse to you from James chapter 4, verse 4. James speaking to his audience, says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You notice the word which is used there, adulterous. For someone to love the world and therefore divide his devotion to God becomes an adulterer. 
in the deepest sense of the word. The union of a man and a woman and the husband and wife relationship where adultery is committed, that, Scripture makes it clear, that is a violation of God's commands, but that is symbolic of a deeper adultery, which is that adultery in relationship with God himself. It is not possible, I believe, for someone to be wholeheartedly committed and dedicated to God, following the Lord every day as he or she should be following God. It is impossible, I believe, for that person to therefore commit marital adultery. When Israel turned to worship other gods, Yahweh called Israel an adulteress. You see the picture over and over again. Look at the major prophets. Look at the minor prophets. Over and over again, there's this statement. Ephraim, you've become an adulteress. Judea, you're an adulteress. And he's talking about, of course, spiritual adultery. The analogy is used over and over again. And many of us, I think, are familiar with that strange little book called Hosea, where God ordered the prophet Hosea to marry a harlot. Why? so that their marriage would serve as a living illustration to Israel of the devastation of their spiritual adultery. It would emphasize at the same time the faithfulness of God. God is always the faithful one. God is always the lover of his people. God never goes astray. But it is Israel that goes astray. And Hosea was to marry Gomer and to illustrate the importance of faithfulness, he being faithful to her illustrated God's position in it all. And her unfaithfulness illustrated Israel's waywardness and its spiritual adultery. Yet in it all, what do we find? Hosea forgave her. God forgives his people. If what? If they return wholeheartedly to him. I think it's really important for us to constantly remember that God's blessings that are given to us in Scripture are conditional. They're conditional on our obedience. God forgave Israel when they turned from their false gods to worship Him. Likewise, God also forgives marital adultery, but He will say, go now and sin no more. You probably well know the story that's told for us in the fourth chapter of John, we won't turn to it, where Jesus came to the well at Sychar, and Jesus was thirsty. And there was a woman there, and he asked her for drink. She was a Samaritan woman. And, of course, that was kind of an eyebrow deal itself, you know. Uh, I mean, after all, Jesus was a Jew, and she's a Samaritan. And she kind of wonders about him. Why does he ask of her a drink? But the key to the whole thing is... Jesus was speaking to a woman who not only was a Samaritan, but she had had five husbands and was currently living with a man who wasn't even her husband. And yet, Jesus shared with her the truth. He brought her to living water because he loved her. In spite of her sin, he loved her. And he brought her into that living relationship with him. The physical, the emotional, the psychological damage of five failed marriages and of the relationship she had with the man at the time would not be erased. She would not become a tabula rasa, you know, clean slate and start all over again. There would be the scars, the wounds 
from the past that she would still bear. But now she had hope. Now she could have peace. Now she could have the strength that she would need to bear those wounds. And even though it's not spelled out here in John chapter 4, you know the truth is still there. Jesus' words were to her, in effect in her heart, go thou and sin no more. And let's see how that works out in another passage, four chapters later in John. It's again, of course, a well-known passage, beginning at verse 1 of John 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Now notice, he's at the temple in Jerusalem. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the midst. Now if these guys were really up to snuff on their scripture, they would have brought him too. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? I mean, they think they've got him over the proverbial barrel. And as they were saying these things, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him, Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And there's been all kinds of guesses as to what Jesus was writing on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote in the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the elder, <laughs> the older ones, <laughs> the ones who more quickly recognized, I guess, the truth of his words. And he was left alone, and the woman where she had been in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to the woman, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Jesus did not violate the essence of the law. Yes, the law of Moses was that she and her partner should have been stoned. But the real meaning of the law was the relationship between her and God. He saw her heart. Jesus looked at this woman, and he could see in her heart where she was. And he also looked at the men who brought her, these Pharisees and scribes, and he knew they were a bunch of hypocrites. And he knew that amongst them were those who had committed adultery, certainly in their hearts, if not in reality, that is in the flesh, but you'll notice he rescued her. But what did he say to her? Go and sin no more. Now Jesus was not saying, go be a person who never commits any kind of a sin from this. He says, go and do not commit adultery again. That's specifically what he is saying to her. The degree to which our society disregards God is seen in the fact that Fidelity between husband and wife today is considered a joke. And it's kind of a joke in programs on television and a joke in movies. Whereas infidelity is considered to be a virtue. It's what you do to express your, your masculinity or your femininity or your independence or your importance as a person. Wherever the church is truly functioning as the bride of Christ, it is characterized by marital fidelity. 
wherever the church is functioning in its own strength, bending the Word of God, looking around for passages of Scripture that you might interpret in a different way so it's okay, you discover that the church is characterized by marital infidelity. Early this century, divorce was almost unheard of within the church. Today, the rate of divorce is nearly as high as that of the society around it, which means the church has acculturated. The church has moved from the teaching of the Word to accept the teaching of modern culture. There are only two biblical allowances, maybe I could say, for divorce. And then it is never commanded. It is never commanded. God says, I hate divorce. And yet it's allowed under a couple of circumstances. Let me read from Matthew 19. Again, the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus and trip him up. And you begin at verse 3 of Matthew 19. And some Pharisees came to him testing him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You know, we hear that at the wedding ceremony, don't we? Let no man separate. That means no man, no woman, the husband, the wife, or anybody else. And they said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart. That's a condemnation. Because of the hardness of the heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. That is not God's way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, adultery, marries an, and, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So there is an allowance there for adultery, but it is not commanded. He doesn't say, well, if your husband or your wife commits adultery, you're supposed to divorce them and go marry. No, it doesn't say that at all. In fact, God teaches forgiveness. I mean, that's the whole point of, of Hosea and Gomer. You know, all through Scripture, that's, that's the way it is. But it is allowed under that circumstance. And then there is one other allowance, and that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where Paul is saying to a, a, a church that had all kinds of problems, very much like the modern church has, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, that the husband should not, and that the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that is, he isn't quoting Jesus per se, but this is the word of God, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. It doesn't mean that he's saved just because he's married to her. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace." 
And so it seems that if an unbelieving husband or wife leaves a believer, goes off and marries someone else, that that original person is thereby relieved of any adultery in a remarriage situation. That is usually the way that's interpreted anyway. But that doesn't mean we're to chase the other person off. We are not. Because the main thrust is love, is forgiveness, is acceptance, is one fleshness. One fleshness. Well, this is a topic you could spend a year on, obviously, and talk from many passages of Scripture, but I think I'll leave it at that. But I think what our point is, needs to be is to search and see what the Word of God says. And if anything, accept the Word of God at face value and don't try to bend it because of our own willfulness and our own ways of the flesh. If we're in total submission to God and our desire is to serve Him and to do what is right, I think His Spirit will lead us in understanding the Scripture and into the way that is right for us and, and for all involved.